I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our work. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate an individual to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 26, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What do states and localities get for $70 billion in economic development spending every year? Is it all just corporate welfare? John Mozina is with the Center for Economic Accountability. He argues there's nothing more special for a politician than a ribbon cutting, but the costs and benefits of economic development spending are rarely fully considered. We spoke in Colorado Springs in October. Government officials love to glom on to uh, the coattails of celebrities. Uh, so they love funding things like movies in their states. They love funding these big projects, big downtown projects that where you get to point to something and say, hey, that's great. Uh, but at, at a first approximation, how much do states spend on economic development straight up? Straight up, the best estimates are that it's about $70 billion a year aggregate in state and local economic development spending across the country, which is, that's a big number and very few people have a reference point for that. So one way that I explain that, that I look at people is that is enough to fund the state budgets of Delaware, West Virginia, South Dakota, New Hampshire, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Vermont, Idaho, Maine, and Iowa combined. So we could run 10 states off of the amount of money that we spend on corporate welfare every year. Okay. So you call it corporate welfare, and that's a perfectly fair mm -hmm. description of it, but I don't think most people look at it that way. They don't. And that's where a lot of the problem comes in. And that's frankly why it has gotten so big, uh, so fast in terms of, of relatively recent history. So the best estimates are that it's uh, roughly tripled in size in terms of percentage of GDP since just 1990, which is in any sort of program a huge thing, especially when it's not just one big thing like Social Security or whatever, but rather this is each state and each city and each county making these decisions in aggregate on their own. So the reason that people don't think of it in terms of corporate welfare is because, like you said, the politicians love the ribbon cuttings. They love the groundbreaking ceremonies. They love taking credit with voters for, quote, creating jobs, unquote. And the reason they can do that is because largely they talk only about the benefits and not about the costs. And that's what people see, the average voter sees, the average civilian sees, is they just say, oh, well, those jobs wouldn't be there anyways if it weren't for the incentive programs. It wouldn't, you know, nothing would have happened if not for the tax credit. So clearly all the benefit goes to them. We see the benefits. We don't see the costs. We love it. We're going to vote to reelect the governor because he or she created jobs. And the costs aren't necessarily line items in a state budget. It's revenue that has been foregone. Yeah, there can be line items, um, and that's always fun to play with. Uh, 
one nice thing in this world, and one of the reasons that there's sort of been a little bit of a resurgence and in interest in this and some movement in the policy world is that back in um, 2014-2015, the Government Accounting Standards Board put out what's fondly known as GASB 77, an accounting requirement for basically any government in the United States short of the federal government that requires them actually in their annual financial report to account for how much tax revenue they forewent that year, how much tax revenue they abated for because of economic development programs. Also, how much tax revenue they lost because somebody else like the state or the county or whatever, if you're a school district, abated taxes that you should be getting a piece of. Um, having those numbers has created this explosion in research and really helped us, um, you know, save almost for sure what we'd always sort of assumed was true, which is that these programs don't work. They don't change companies' decisions. They at best are ineffective and at worst are act actively harmful to things like states' long-term fiscal health economic freedom, uh, the diversity of the economy. These programs tend to concentrate the share of the economy that's held by big business, you know, even further than it would be. And you can argue one way or the other about is it is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's probably a bad thing to do it artificially through government policy rather than just sort of through the actual normal movement of the market. I'm thinking of Foxconn. <laughs> the a gift that keeps on giving. It's a ma massive giveaway that ultimately produced very little new employment. And uh, Wisconsin was left holding the bag. Yeah, they were, their supporters and their defenders will tell you, oh, well, we're not done yet. Oh, we're still building. Oh, things are still going to happen. But I mean, at this point, the argument is sort of circling around the, well, is it going to cost the taxpayers of Wisconsin $200,000 per job? Or four hundred thousand dollars per job, and that's sort of where the argument's going. Uh, they're not following through on their initial promises. They're downsizing what it was that they said they were going to do. Uh, at one point, I love the fact that they were um, so unhappy with the attention that they said something to the effect of, "Well, uh, we're just going to stop talking about what we're going to do and only talk about what we've done," um, which is a fascinating PR strategy if you can do it, but probably not if you've just got you know five billion dollars of somebody else's money. <laughs> so, uh, cost per job seems like a pretty interesting, uh, metric. Do we have an, an idea of, cause there, it, the number of jobs is always a front and center in any economic development project, uh, that a state is trying to put together. So is cost per job, uh, something that, that we can put together data on or what do we have data on it? It, it varies. And part of the challenge with that is that, um, cost per job claims, depend on what's sort of fondly known as the but-for argument, which proves that economists shouldn't name things. Um, it's the idea that but for these incentives, if we didn't have these incentives, uh, there would be no jobs. Therefore, we can attribute all of the, you know, say there's 100 jobs in this new building, that therefore all of those 100 jobs are attributable to the incentive. And therefore, it was a, you know, $100,000 incentive. It's $1,000 a job. That's I mean, that's accounting fraud in any other industry, but it's it's just it's how economic development works. The you know, the idea that the you can attribute the entire value of the job solely to the incentive implies that it was the incentive and only the incentive, 
that made the company choose to build, hire, expand, whatever there, which is just not how things work in the real world. I mean, uh, every year, Area Development Magazine, which is sort of the Bible of the site selection industry, does a survey of corporate decision makers. And they say, what factors go into your decisions about what to build and where? And they come up with, I think the most recent one, there was a list of something like 25 different things that uh, at least half the respondents said were extremely or very important. And like three of the 25 were kind of subsidy and incentive related. Nobody's saying that these things don't matter at all, but there's 22 other factors that go in. So those other 22 factors should bear some of the ROI on the job creation. So the, you know, if there's an airport, well, the community has been paying to keep up the airport. And if proximity to an airport is something that the company cared about, then, you know, at least some percentage of the job should be attributed to the investment they made in the airport and not the incentive over and over the workplace development programs, uh, regulatory environment, labor things, all these different factors that go into it. So uh, the actually coming up with a cost per job um, requires sort of buying into the economic development industries, uh -huh. yeah. okay. like implication that th only their things, only what they are doing has anything to do with how what businesses do, which is usually actually the other way around. So e economists, uh, economic people who do economic development stuff or job predictions for like if a, a company does a big expansion, they'll go to an economist. The economist will give them an estimate of the new job creation, that sort of thing. Economists love using multipliers in those contexts. <laughs> and I see you smiling, but whenever you, you, you're using a multiplier to predict the impact of a government-led economic development project, somehow, somehow the multiplier that is used to estimate total economic impact is always much larger than it is if you were, say, submitting an economics article to a journal. Yeah. I mean, serious economists, even ones who are skeptical of this stuff, say that, yes, there is a valid economic argument for having some level of multiplier, that, that you know, economic activity breeds further economic activity. That's, that's sort of self-evident just if you look at the way business works. But the uh, reality is, and, you know, some of the published research, uh, uh, researcher Tim Bartik at the Upjohn Institute in Kalamazoo is one of the most respected workers in this space, uh, is like sort of keep it to like two or below sort of depending, like there's a couple outliers, but for the most part, it's, you know, 1.3, 1.5, two at the most. Uh, the worst I have seen in practice was when South Carolina uh, pinched the Carolina Panthers team offices and practice facility, not the stadium, but like the practice fields and training rooms and offices uh, to basically South Charlotte or across the border of South Carolina from uh, North Carolina, Charlotte, they used, I believe it was a 39.1 multiplier for, you know, for, for moving like, you know, the, where the players practiced, um, you know, they weren't moving their houses. They weren't moving their businesses. They were just moving like, you know, a couple miles down the road, uh, to where they were going to be practicing that day. But they claimed that that was going to be a 39.1 multiplier. So that's the kind of game that, I mean, that, that's like the worst end, but yeah, like three, five things that just aren't supported, like you said, by any research. And, and it's interesting, even at just the most basic, if, if you're not educated in economic development, economics, even just taking, uh, a pedestrian view of it and saying, well, if the multiplier is three 
and almost all private sector activity is less than that, then we should be taxing the heck out of people and putting them all and putting all that money into projects just like this one. Yeah. No, there was a case where I looked at a, at a proposal for a uh, minor league soccer stadium in Raleigh, North Carolina, not, not to pick on North Carolina, but uh, uh, they had these insane multipliers in terms of what the, and I don't have the numbers to hand of like what the economic impact was going to be. And I said, that seems unusually high. And I went and I did the math. And uh, if every job in uh, the Raleigh metro area uh, sort of had that same multiplier, it would have resulted in an economy the size of the United Kingdoms. So why don't we make the entire economy out of out of uh, minor league soccer stadiums? Because apparently that's the best thing going. So uh, people don't really care about this stuff generally. So put it into terms that that they would appreciate. Yeah, and this is this is really the core of some of the advocacy work that that we're trying to do, and some of our allies around the country are, are trying to to do, um, which is. You know, economic development policy is one of those classic areas of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs that a couple of people get a lot of benefits and the costs are spread out really wide for all of us. So our what we try to do is take it and reconcentrate the costs into things that people might care about. And it's a little unusual for sort of a free market libertarian organization to be talking about like government programs that people like. Um but, you know, we have to get their attention first. So uh, I'm from the Detroit area. Uh, recently, the city of Detroit, recently bankrupt, uh, spent more money, not even a tax payment, but a straight check out of the general fund to uh, purchase land that it then gave to Fiat Chrysler Automobiles for uh, for free to expand a plant in the city. They spent more money on that free land than they did to run the Detroit City Health Department that year. I mean, it's one thing to say people, oh, 54 million or X amount per resident. But if you say that's more money than they spent to run the health department in a city that's got some pretty significant public health challenges, people say, well, that doesn't seem right. And I and other reformers get to go, I know, right? And then we get to have a larger discussion about that. A couple other examples, um, state of Iowa uh, looked at their uh, massive collection of tax credit programs and using their own math. Uh, they have more every year in tax credit costs um, than all state and municipal government agencies combined spend on mental health and disability services for the entire population of Iowa. That's the kind of thing where you can have a discussion. Somebody who isn't going to care about programs or subsidies, where you can say, like, look, this is the trade-off your state is making. You may think it's worth it. You may not. But this is the discussion you should be having. You should be having it with your elected officials. Um, you know, your own home state of Kentucky. I mentioned these before we started talking. Uh, uh, the economic development tax abatements there are equal to the amount spent on running the attorney general's office, uh, the uh, Commonwealth attorney, the state's attorneys, I guess, and all of the county prosecutors. So, again, the, the people of Kentucky might think that's worth it, but it's probably a discussion that should be had of like, okay, given this cost is what we're getting in return worth it. Um, and the the winner in the clubhouse, I haven't run every state, I haven't run every city, but um, I still got to go play with New York, which is a whole nother bottle of wax. But Louisiana, which has famously really rich and egregious subsidy and incentive programs, uh, their tax abatements could run their, uh, by my math, their State Department of Environmental Quality, Department of Natural Resources, 
Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, the State Fire Marshal, and the State Highway Traffic Safety Commission combined. Again, it might be worth it. I you know, would tend to doubt that. But again, that's not the discussion. All people are hearing is job creation. If we don't go that, the jobs will go someplace else. Well, people might say, at that cost, okay, go someplace else. We'll, we'll be fine because usually they're at even the claims of job creation are a tiny fraction of the economy. Um, and we know from research, especially research done by uh, uh, Professor Nate Fisher at the University of Texas at Austin and, and uh, Ed Molesky at Duke, uh, that there's a measurable political benefit, especially to governors and mayors, to the executive, uh, from claiming that you've won jobs, you've created jobs through you know, putting together the right package. We also know through the research that as soon as voters are informed that uh, this means that that money is no longer going to be available for other governmental purposes or for tax cuts, that that sort of artificial political advantage goes away. And it becomes like any other program where you might like it, you might not like it, but it's not just sort of this automatic, you know, golden light bathing your elected officials and you want to go vote for them more now. So have doing the homework to figure out what these costs are and then finding ways of communicating that to the various audiences and making it part of the debate, getting to the point where the media starts doing this of, of like, hey, you know, you guys should probably just stop just sort of saying this will create 5,000 jobs and maybe say this, they say it will create 5,000 jobs, but here's all the evidence that they haven't, you know, panned out in the past. Changing the conversation is how we get to, you know, meaningful long-term reforms where hopefully the size of the agencies uh, that are could have been paid for, start shrinking down to, you know, maybe it's, uh, uh, you know, one local prosecutor as opposed to all the prosecutors. John Mozina runs the Center for Economic Accountability. We spoke in October in Colorado Springs. You can support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast with an end-of-the-year gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, and thank you. <laughs>